Well, welcome, welcome, welcome. Let's uh, pray. We're going to jump right into lesson one of the book of Revelation. I'm excited that you are here, and it's glad to have everybody here tuning in with us. So let's, do, let's just pray and get started. Father, thank you so much for an opportunity to study to show ourselves approved. Lord, I pray as we take on this subject of the book of Revelation in a time in our nation and in our world where our thoughts are leaning toward, is this the end? And what are you up to in our world? Father, I pray that our eyes will be open. I pray that we'll have clear understanding of the things, Lord, that sometimes can seem so uh, disheartening as we read through them. And so, Lord, I thank you that you just open our minds, open our spirit, open our heart. Give us great understanding as we take this journey together. And, Lord, I pray it would be a great journey that we would enjoy together in the book of Revelation, studying your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You say amen. Hey, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much. I'm excited, a little bit nervous, a little bit excited about being here to uh, tackle the book of Revelation. Let me tell you why it's been on my heart, and then I'm going to jump right into it and give you an overview of where we're going to go, and I pray that it really encourages you and excites you. Several months ago, in the month of March, when the coronavirus kind of landed in our nation and things started really shifting, uh, astronomically really shifting uh, in the history of the world. I don't think our entire world is really ever to shut down globally and economically like it has over the last several months and the effect that it had on our nation economically. The political divisiveness that's in our nation now uh, with the different political parties and then the economic strain on uh, the world and even on America, it started generating a lot of conversations that I was having with people asking me, do I believe that this is the end? And I always try to go to the Bible and, and bring the Bible into my life in the present moment. So even though the Bible's 2,000 years old, I like to run it into my present moment and let it bring prophetic insight to life. And so that just caused me to go on a study. Is this the end? I think every generation kind of lives with this is probably the end. Uh, I think it's meant to be that way, that at any given moment Jesus could return and it's to incite us to, to live a productive life and to live for the kingdom first and not me first. But as we've seen over the last several months, uh, I think it's pretty clear that when things are out of the norm and when things begin to happen out of the norm, it does cause especially Christians to begin to wonder what is going on and is this the end of the world. So I jumped in to a study myself of the book of Revelation, just reading through it again and rehearsing, especially things like uh, Revelation 13 with the rise of the beast system and the, the economic and political uh, recourse that will happen because of that. And it really made me study that out just to see. So I thought, well... Why not just tackle the book of Revelation? So I'm so glad you're here. I've been a little nervous about it, right? It's a strange book to try to go through and teach. Now, before we get in, I want to give a little bit of a disclaimer. Is I understand that there's a thousand YouTube videos with different perspectives on the book of Revelation. Even in the church here, some of my best friends, we all uh, have different beliefs about 
pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib, different beliefs about the rapture. I'm a pre-trib rapture guy, but I have some dear friends of mine, even in the church here, that are post-trib, mid-trib. And, you know, we go, we eat lunch together, we hash it out with one another, we debate it. At the end of the day, we're still great friends and we're running for Jesus because the end of Revelation is pretty clear. Uh, God uh, restores everything that the enemy has destroyed. So, I'm okay with the end, and sometimes in the middle we can get a little shaky, and that's just true with any prophecy. Anytime we're talking about books that have a prophetic future lean to them, we're going to get all kind of different opinions about it. Well, what do you think, and what do they think? So I just want to say that whatever I teach during this series, it's probably going to take us about 28 weeks, so I ask you to just buckle up and... Uh, Hang in there the whole way with me because if you can stay the whole way, it really will make more clarity as we go through it rather than just picking and choosing a topic that you want to do. So let me just give the disclaimer. I know there's going to be people that think differently than me and can back it up scripturally just like I will try to do, and I'm okay with that. That doesn't bother me, uh, and, and I'm not here to say that the way I'm going to teach it is the right way. Uh, there's a lot of people that feel like their way is the right way, and again, I'm okay with that too. That doesn't really uh, bother me at all. But the way I'm going to do it is chapter by chapter and lay it out to, of a more literal perspective. And I even know with that that there's YouTube videos that say the book of Revelation is not literal, it's all allegorical, or it's already happened, it's already passed away. I had a friend years ago that believed we were already in the millennial kingdom right now. And I was like, dude, you can't tell me you think we're literally in the millennial kingdom right now. And he's like, oh, yes, we are. And so I think that's just true with any book of prophecy that we're always going to, uh, how shall I say it, have disagreements on what it is. So the way I'm going to tackle it, though, is chapter by chapter and from a very literal perspective. If I believe it's an opinion, I'll just tell you it's an opinion, and I will try to back up things that I think are factual with Scripture, not speculation. So we will be going all over the Bible. Uh, next week in Lesson 2, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Jesus Christ being the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. And, man, I really encourage you... Uh, before even this lesson, I really encourage you, lesson two is going to be critical for understanding how I'm going to go through the book of Revelation, and many of the things that I may say or teach will be directly connected to next week's lesson, lesson two, so I invite you to come back. If not, you can catch it when we post it. But uh, let's jump right in. Open your Bible to Revelation 1. We're going to take two weeks before we even start studying chapter by chapter, and that's very purposeful. This week is kind of an uh, introduction, so to speak. On your notes, I've called it the playbill, and I'll explain that in a minute of what I mean by that. And then next week will be like a preamble, like the preamble to the Constitution. Next week will be a preamble to the book of Revelation, very critical that you, you hear it and see it. So we will have two weeks out of about the 28 weeks that we will... Uh, kind of just get ready to slide into the book so it may make a little more sense. I hope what I share tonight will just kind of expand your thinking on it, what we're going to be talking about, try to touch on some things we're going to be talking about to whet your appetite. But let's do start here in Revelation chapter 1. And I want you to uh, look at verse 1 and verse 19. I'll, I'll read from the New Living Translation, verse 1. 
This is the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him. And then if you'll underline this um, word, this phrase, to show his servants the events that must soon take place, he sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John. And then down in verse 19, Jesus, this is Jesus speaking. He says, write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. So here's what I want to look. You can look on the screen. This is the way I want to go with this. Uh, I want to go with it from a thinking of a theater. Uh, you know, we're in Douglasville. The Fox Theater is probably 20, 20 minute ride from us. But there's a, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, performances that come to the Fox Theater. And so Robin and I have been privy to go to some of those. And when you go in, you get a nice little playbill. And, and that playbill just gives a, the acts that are going to be Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, and then it gives a, a list of characters and who those characters are. But when I was reading this in the book of Revelation, it dawned on me that Revelation to John was much like a theatrical performance that he was getting to be privy to. Because as it said, he said, I want you to write down what you've seen. I'm going to show you something and you're going to see it. So the entire book of Revelation to me is better understood that he's literally looking at a theatrical performance of the future. Uh, God is not just downloading words to him. Example, as the Bible will teach about many of other books of the Bible, that it was the Holy Spirit that would move on Paul to write something down or would move on Isaiah and they would scribe it down. And it says that the Spirit would move on men to to put down the literal words of God. But Revelation seems to be a little different because as Jesus is and the Spirit are moving to John, it seems to be that what they're doing is not just downloading a bunch of words that John is trying to write, but he is showing John a theatrical uh, performance of the future, of what's going on in the future. So that's going to really make you, uh, you know, understand why there's just a lot of these weird symbolic things because John is really trying to write down and describe what he's seeing. So could you imagine going to the Fox Theater and, uh, you know, watching a performance of, say, Phantom of the Opera? And as you're watching a performance of the Phantom of the Opera, uh, you, are, you are given the job to write down everything you see. So not everything you just hear word-wise, you know, the script, the transcript, but everything you see. So you've got to describe the phantom. You've got to describe all of the cast of characters that are part of that. So imagine yourself on an island of Patmos. You're banished, and then an angel shows up, and through Jesus Christ begins to download to you the events of the future, but in a, in a movie-type setting. And, and John, in some weird way, you know, he didn't have a typewriter to type or a computer to take good notes, is having to the best of his ability write all of this down. And so that's kind of why I said I want to tackle it more literal than figuratively and more literal than just it's a, it's a book full of symbols. I want to tackle it when I say literally that I believe John literally wrote down what he saw. And so the challenge is, well, if John saw that some 2,000 years ago and he saw some, you know, flying creature come out of the abyss with, with fire in his tail, well, what do we do? Well, we go, oh, that's probably a nuclear missile because that's what we do with prophecy we don't understand. We try to make it simple and clear to us. And uh, 
And I'm okay with that, but everybody's going to have an opinion of what it would be. So rather than trying to speculate what would a creature out of the abyss that had fire coming out of its mouth be, is that an airplane, a jet, uh, whatever, I'm just going to take it literal as we go through it so that he, whatever it was to you and I, he's, he's seeing a picture of it. Now, he may describe it as a dragon, a red dragon with a woman on top of it, but we're going to take the literal what he wrote and see if we can't connect it to scriptures in the Bible and to make some practicality out of it so it makes sense. So I've put on the TVs for you, and you can follow along on the TVs with your worksheets. And uh, those of you that are just watching online, we're uploading as well all of our PowerPoints so that you can follow along with the PowerPoints and make it a little easier. But I, I titled the first lesson, Playbill. I want to go through now and I want to give you the various acts of the book of Revelation, Act 1, Act 2, through the book of Revelation. And then I want to go to another section of the playbill, uh, treating it as if it was a theatrical performance of our future, which it is. I want to take you to the next section of the playbill, the cast of characters. And in that cast of characters, I'm just going to give you an overview of the people we're going to meet as we go through the book of Revelation. So let's just jump right in. Here's Act 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, well, in Act 1, we're going to study Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega. That will be next week as we jump into it. Jesus is the beginning of the end, and that's basically Act 1. Uh, we jump into the Revelation chapter 1, and so over these 22 chapters, I'm going to break it down into different acts of kind of what we will be studying together and what we can expect to talk about. So next week, Act 1 is pretty clear. We're going to talk about Jesus and the Alpha and the Omega, and then we will jump in immediately with Chapter 1 with the vision of Jesus. That will conclude Act 1. We'll move into Act 2. And this is going to be critical for us because in Act 2, we're going to talk about the seven stars and the seven lampstands, which are, uh, as, as we will see it, the... Uh, the churches and, and what's going on with the church age, and we will spend several weeks talking about that. Then we come directly into Act 3. This is where we jump into Chapter 4, and things begin to change drastically. Uh, 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 Revelation 1, 2, and Chapter 3 are pretty simple to understand. There's not much a leeway on our subjectivity to what is what because they just tell us. But the moment we jump into Act 3, we'll be moving into Chapter 4, and as we move into chapter 4, now things begin to change. We begin to get a different glimpse because we're not just looking at things from an earthly perspective, but we're literally getting an overview from a heavenly perspective of our future. So from chapter 4, my belief is that chapter 4 on is an overview of the future of humanity from a heavenly perspective. And we will jump into that and and try to really make some sense out of that for us. In, Acts chapter, in, in Act 3, we will get into the subject of the throne and the Lamb, the 24 elders around the throne. It'll be a great teaching. Now we move into Act 4. And this is where it gets interesting because now we get to talk about all the dirty stuff, the what-ifs. And this uh, Act 4 is where we're going to begin with the opening of the seals. And as we get in with the opening of the seals, it is a very interesting topic because now uh, we begin to talk about this thing called the tribulation. 
And we're going to spend a lot of time on the tribulation in the weeks ahead because that really is what many people want to know most about is this topic called the tribulation period. The tribulation period, we will define it for you very well. We'll talk about it, but just so you know, the tribulation period is totally different than just being persecuted. And that becomes a problem with understanding Revelation because what we will do is we will say persecution is tribulation, and it's totally different. The tribulation period that we talk about, that seven-year period, which we would say pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, where the Antichrist is here on the earth working a kingdom, that is not the Antichrist persecuting people. That's not the tribulation period. The tribulation is the wrath of God. The tribulation is the judgment of God. And a lot of times we tie the tribulation to what the devil is doing, but the tribulation is about the judgment of God and the wrath of God being poured out. And yes, inside that, you will see that the Antichrist is working as well to kill people and behead people and persecute. But persecution and beheadings of Christians is not the tribulation. That's happening all over the world right now. We don't need a tribulation period to see that. It's just pretty clear. And that's where it's going to really get good together as we jump in. We'll also talk about the beginning of the tribulation. What, what kicks off this seven-year period of tribulation that we talk about and the wrath of God, which is really most of chapter 5 through 19. It's most of the book of Revelation is this seven-year period called the tribulation period with a few uh, inserts here and there of some parenthetical thinking about what's going on. Now, in this section... In, Acts, in Act 4, we are going to take a left-hand turn and go into the book of Daniel. And we will spend two to three weeks in the book of Daniel, uh, studying the book of Daniel. My belief is it's impossible to know the book of Revelation without all of the Bible because Jesus is the Genesis and the, and the, and the Revelation, the Alpha and the Omega. But it's, I believe it's also impossible to even know uh, and understand the book of Revelation without the book of Daniel. And so we're going to do a left-hand turn when we get into Act 4, and we're going to take probably two to three weeks to study the book of Daniel, and a, a specifically a vision in the book of Daniel that was given to him that is pretty much the outworking of Revelation. Act 5 is going to be very interesting because it will... Lean us in from the book of Daniel into Act 5, which is mid-tribulation. And in mid-tribulation, that's the three-and-a-half-year point, a lot of stuff begins to take place. Uh, it just fills your brain with what all will be going on. By the time we hit the mid-tribulation point, the seals have been opened, the trumpets have been blown, and we will be moving into the bold judgments to come later in the second three-and-a-half years and uh, mid-trib's got a lot to deal with. In the mid-trib moments, we'll be dealing with the Antichrist, 666, the mark of the beast, politics, religion, and all of the things that are going on economically in the world, not just on a political, religious, and economic scale, but on a spiritual scale as well. So we will spend a lot of time in mid-trib leading up to it, then a lot of time in mid-trib understanding what's going on in the world, and we will discuss things like, will America be here, uh, or do we even play a role? And so as we get into that, I'll try to do my best to be fair to that and give it to you the best I can. That's Act 5. Then we move into Act 6, 
And this is where we start the downhill run toward what we would call the end of the tribulation. And it is the bold judgment and Satan's doom. Uh, there will be the bowls poured out and we will, after mid-trill, begin coming into a finality of Satan's doom. At the end of Act 6, it's interesting. We come into something that uh, I've not heard taught a lot, but I have heard it taught, so it's not a new idea to me. Uh, and it, I call it the intermission. And I don't mean intermission that will take some time off, uh, but intermission is that there is a 75-day interval from the time... Satan is locked away into the abyss and, and, and 75 extra days from that moment that we're going to talk about. And that is from the book of Daniel as well. And it's interesting what's going to be going on in that 75 days after Jesus has won the battle and put the devil, uh, locked him away for a thousand years. We'll have uh, an interval of time there and we're going to talk about that interval of time and get in it in a way that hopefully will express what Jesus is going to be doing. Act 7 then is the thousand year reign of Christ, the millennial reign of Christ. Uh, a lot of thinking may be there's not much said about that. Uh, and I get questions all the time, will my dog be there? Will, my, will we know? Can we get married? Will we have children? Uh, all of those great questions of the thousand year reign of Christ, but it's different than eternal life. The thousand-year reign of Christ is not eternal life. It is the kingdom reign of Jesus on the earth to fulfill the plan of God, to give a Sabbath day rest to those that have believed, and a, you know, a day to God is a thousand years to us. So we get a thousand-year reign. We're going to talk about that in detail because we have to go back into the Old Testament to understand what will be happening during the kingdom reign of Christ on the earth from Jerusalem through his people, through the church. That's why the Bible says we rule and reign with him. Well, it's talking about this period of time, a thousand years. Those of us that have been faithful in little, he'll make ruler over much. If I've been faithful in somebody else's, he'll give me to be a ruler over others as well. And that's that thousand year reign, that millennial reign of Christ. So it's going to be a good time, but the Bible speaks a lot of the thousand-year reign of Christ. When we get into it at the end of the chapter of Revelation, as we begin to talk about, you get about two or three verses of the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. But if you do your study and you go back into the Old Testament prophets, it is riddled with what will be going on during that thousand-year reign, and we will pull all of that out to the best of my ability. Then we move into the judgment of Satan and the dead at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ. We will talk about the dead, what happens to the dead. Is there a literal lake of fire? Is it figurative? Will people in the lake of fire really be alive forever and ever and ever? And a, and a great question that is really thought provoking, will we be able to see them throughout eternity? My belief is we will, that we will be able to see those that are in the lake of fire who are tormented day and night with the devil and the Antichrist, the false prophet, death and hell, thrown into the lake of fire and all those who are judged. And uh, it is a, a spectacle to behold when we get in it and study that. Next is Act 8, uh, the beautiful side of the end of Revelation. If you can hang in there all the way through it is a new heaven and a new earth and we will discuss what does that look like what will a new heaven and a new earth look like will we be able to just 
be somewhere by literally thinking about it. Uh, uh, it's definitely different than what's kind of taught in Christian thinking that we're going to be floating around on clouds with angel wings on our back. It's totally different than that. And it's going to be a beautiful sight to behold as we get into it. And then the New Jerusalem and the Bride of the Lamb, the city of God that comes down out of heaven and begins to, God begins to dwell with his people. And then the curtain call, and I'll explain this more later, Eden restored. The tree of life we find once again, the river of life, the healing of the nations, God dwelling with his people. We find the concept of the Garden of Eden restored again, that God is dwelling with his people. The tree of life is there. The river of life is there. And so we're working our way all the way to that point. Well, that is the playbill in a nutshell. And so now what I would like to do is talk about the cast of characters. Who are we going to bump into? And let's try to at least get an overview of their role that they're going to play. It may make a little more sense. Well, the first character is pretty clear. It's Jesus Christ, the living one. Jesus says that of himself as he comes in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 that he is the living one. And we're going to study him in depth next week. So next week we will start trying to understand Jesus Christ from a different perspective because we are going to talk about Jesus Christ as he relates to time. It is impossible, my opinion now, it's impossible to understand the book of Revelation without understanding time, that dimension I call time, that, you know, in, in physics, it's the fourth dimension. We have three dimensions of the visual, and then we step out of that in the unseen fourth dimension called time. I believe, in my thinking, I'll, I'll try to back this with Scripture next week and uh, at least cause you to have a rethink about time. And when you have a rethink about this thing we call time, where we're probably even asking now, when is Jesus coming? That's time. Uh, how long is the tribulation? That's time. How long is eternity? We even try to define eternity with time. It's forever and ever and ever. But eternity is not measured in time. Eternity is measured because it is the nature of God. So when we say eternal life, we literally mean that we're in the realm of God. There is no more measuring of time. The measuring of time was given very specifically. We'll look at that next week as we begin to pull out the cast of characters, Jesus, the living one. And as we do, this is what it says about Jesus in uh, Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. It says this, And I turned around to see him was speaking to me, and when I turned around, I saw seven golden lampstands. There was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with golden sashes, he was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair of his head was white like that of wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire, and his feet were like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword, and his face was shining like the sun in all of its brilliance. Man, I love that. That is a description of Jesus. I'll give you a picture of the first character we're really going to talk about and see, and this is probably the best I could do, uh, but I think it gives you a visual, right? I mean, we do not have an actual photograph of Jesus, but uh, 
I kind of put this together in Photoshop to the best of my ability, stole some images from various places, and based on what we read and some other people that had done the work for me, uh, this is pretty much a picture of what John saw. So could you imagine sitting on an island and you've been banished to that island and then all of a sudden you have a vision and this is what you see. You see the Son of God in all of His brilliance and all of His glory and seven lampstands that we will see in the weeks ahead represent the seven churches of God and then seven stars in his right hand that he's holding that represent the angels of the seven churches, which I think is a pretty brilliant thing to know that Jesus has supernatural expectations for the church, not just natural expectations as he holds the seven stars in his hand uh, representing the seven angels that oversee it. The next thing we're going to see are the angels of the seven churches. Uh, John sees a picture of Jesus holding those seven stars in his hand. And you know, there are people who believe, well, that was just pastors. Uh, he was giving an invitation to the pastors in these letters. And I'm not opposed to that. I don't think that's wrong. But I do find that almost most of the time, if not nearly all of the time, that the word messenger is used, it's in correlation to a supernatural being of an angel. Yeah, there are a few times that it's a natural, but it usually comes as a supernatural thought many more times when it's translated out. And I believe that literally over the church today are angels. I believe right here on this property right now as we're meeting tonight that there are angels in the supernatural world that oversee and overwatch God's people. It says in the, in the Old Testament that he will give his angels charge over you to keep you in all of your ways. You remember Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, when they were kind of feeling uh, against the armies that were coming against him and Elisha said this, he said, I pray that you open up his eyes so that he may see into the spirit world that there are more that are for us than there are against us. And his eyes were open and he saw across the hill the armies of the Lord, the angels of God, and there were more for them. So right now, even though I cannot see it, remember this is the book of Revelation, we're going to get an insight picture to the unseen world. In other words, that which is not seen to you right now, John is going to be privy to seeing it uh, in, a, in a picture form and he says, and I saw Jesus holding the seven stars in his hand, and those seven stars are seven angels. I believe even right now there are angels of God that have been stationed around this property, around this church. There are angels of God that have been stationed around your life because there is the supernatural unseen world all around us right now. And so in the middle of Douglasville, Georgia, we may be looking at the chaos of our earth and the chaos of our world and in the natural, the violence and the hatred and the, all the stuff that's going on from murders and looting and rioting all around in the world and things being blown up and wars. And we see that in the natural. Just know this, what John saw is that in the supernatural, there's something brewing as well. And I love that about God. Hey, here's a picture of what uh, of an angel guarding the church. I know that's just a, you know from the maybe the Renaissance painting there of an angel, a statue of an angel. But listen to what this verse says: "Write to the angel of Ephesus, and thus saith the Lord who holds the seven stars in his right hand, 
and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Doesn't that excite you? It excites me to know that there's angels of God that watch over me, watch over my family, watch over you, watch over this property. And even though I cannot see them, I need to believe in my heart that God is there. The third cast of characters that come is the seven churches. We will spend several weeks uh, talking. It starts out in lesson four, I believe. We will spend a lot of time on the seven churches and looking at the seven churches that are in Asia Minor and, and where they show up. I'll give you a, uh, on the TV, if you'll look, I want to show you a map of where the seven churches are. Now, this is in the corner tip of Asia Minor. And these seven churches that John will write to, right off of this coastline, will be the Isle of Patmos where John will be. We'll talk more about that later. But these are the seven churches he writes to. Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Smyrna, and Ephesus. In the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean Sea right off the coast of what would be modern-day Turkey. Let me give you a modern-day map and kind of show you a little more visual of where we are. If you see uh, the green with the star up in the corner, that is where the churches were located. So in modern-day Turkey, right off the coast of Turkey, you will see the seven churches John is writing to. However, the majority of the book of Revelation will be focused in the Middle East. And uh, I think it's not just by chance that the churches Jesus had him write to were in the north of the land of Israel. If you notice the little red dot there right in the center, it has Israel. And then out to the right is the word Iraq in purple. I believe a lot of what is going to be happening will be happening in this region. I highlighted the word Iraq because I believe that the seat of the Antichrist and uh, Babylon, as we study Babylon and mystery Babylon, uh, is and was in modern-day Iraq in that area. Many people and scholars believe that the Garden of Eden was in that area of Iraq, and that is the land where... Uh, God planted a garden and originally planted Lucifer to rule and reign from. And this is why the Middle East will become such a critical component in this end time. Because in the left corner there it says Israel. Do you not think it funny? Israel's probably about the size of our Rhode Island here in the United States. Do you not think it interesting that the entire world is ticked off about that little bitty red spot? And that just makes me think... There must be something supernatural. Why would most of the Middle East be ticked at this little bitty red dot called Israel? Well, the whole book of Revelation from chapter 5 on is going to focus on this nation of Israel, the Jewish nation. A lot of times we get in the book of Revelation and think it's about us, the church. But I believe from Revelation chapters 4 and on, we are primarily dealing with the Antichrist, uh, the, the rule of God in judgment, and the kingdom of Satan on the earth, specifically directed toward God's people, the Jewish nation in Israel, as God is going to fulfill his promises to Abraham, his promises to King David to once again sit and rule, and he will rule from the land of Israel in Jerusalem. But you can see this area is primarily as we begin to move through the book of Revelation. I, I, I find it interesting myself as I study it, but I, I want to note that as 
we begin to complete the book of Revelation and the judgments that come, it will push the majority of the world into the Middle East because one-third of the world, the oceans, the rivers, the lands, and the people have been annihilated through the previous judgments, and most of the end of the world is going to happen in this little land of Syria, Iraq, Jordan, and Israel, and Lebanon. And you already see all of that in the news now as we see the tensions mounting and the divisiveness happening in that area where they're fighting over that little strip of land in the nation of Israel. The next character we see after the seven churches, we will get a glimpse of the 24 elders. Uh, and just so you kind of understand, and I'll try to pull this out a little more clear, but just as a cast of characters, they represent the governing rulership of God. That God has always been a governing God. He's governed through his wisdom, and he's governed through his commands, and he governs through his spirit. And so even in, in the heavenly realm... We see 24 elders seated upon thrones because God has always been about kingdom government. And even though we may kind of skew the government of God and, you know, we ourselves get a little, uh, you know, I love being in charge and I'm in control down here. Here's what I want you to think about the government of God with these elders. It says this in Revelation 4, 4, the 24 elders surrounded him and uh, 24 thrones surrounded him and 24 elders sat on them. And they were clothed with white and had golden crowns on their heads. I put this picture up there because it gives me a sense of what true leadership is and what it means to truly govern. A lot of times in church especially, we hear words like, oh, she's a Jezebel, or he is an Ahab, or, uh, or we abuse prophecy and we, ab we abuse our role as a pastor, you know, I'm in charge, and you better listen to me. And then we tell you that if you really want to be spiritual, you need to submit to those in authority because if you don't submit to those in authority, which is a true statement, but then we realize those in authority really are maybe arrogant and or prideful, and we have the questions, well, am I supposed to submit? I, I gave you this picture because I believe it represents the most beautiful expression of governing with God, and that is the word humility. The Bible says, humble yourself under the hand, under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up in due season. And this picture represents those 24 elders with thrones, taking the crowns off their head and laying them at the feet of God Almighty. And I think that's a beautiful example of leadership. Uh, notice that they're all kneeling with the crowns off their head. They're not sitting in the chair with the crown still on their head, going, hey, why don't you come and fall at my feet because I'm in charge. And I think as we go through it, we will see that this governing group of people represent the way that we are to be, especially the body of Christ uh, as it plays out. Who are these 24 elders? And we'll try to make sense of that as we get into it. But for now, they represent the ruling uh, uh, people and governance of God. Now an interesting one, the 144,000. This has probably been one of the biggest questions that has been asked me through my years of pastoring. Who are the 144,000? And there's a whole group of people right now that believe that uh, that has to do with maybe Jehovah Witness. And you'll see some guys riding around on bicycles with white shirts on and pins in their pocket and a Bible in their hand knocking on doors uh, because there's a, there is a religious belief and a religious a denomination now in the world that believes that the 144,000 are going to be those that Jehovah Witness that really work their way into the kingdom. 
And so I, I, the, my only problem with that is we're already 2,000 years away from the death of Christ, and I would find it hard to believe that in 2,000 years we still hadn't reached 144,000 people yet. And so that, that, that arrogance that says, if I just work hard enough, I might be one of those people. Well, it's probably the most misinterpreted and mistranslated cast of characters. I want to give you a scripture here and a picture that I think will help sum it up. Wait, this is Revelation chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. Wait, don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we've placed the seal of God on their forehead and of his servants. And I heard how many were marked with the seal of God. And here it is. I don't know how people miss this, but I guess they do. 144,000 were sealed. And then what does it say? (laughs) From all the tribes of Israel. So if you're not a Jew... If you're not a Hebrew, part of a tribe of Israel, well, then you're not part of the 144,000. The 144,000 are not a group of people who really work hard, riding bicycles, knocking on doors, winning souls that are going to be marked as 144,000. The 144,000 are a group of people, very specific number, by the way, that God seals out of the 12 tribes of Israel. We'll look at that in depth. The next character that we see popping up is the prostitute. The prostitute is going to represent a global false religion. Uh, right now, we do have false religions all over the globe. And, you know, Christians say, well, ours is the one true religion. But if you talk to a Buddhist or a Muslim or a, a Sikh or a Hindu, everybody that's religious feels like their religion is right. It's the right religion. And we all argue on it. That's why it's our religion. We were raised to believe it's right, and it is right. And So even us as Christians need to know that there's other people who feel like they're just as right as you are right. So when you say Jesus is the only way, there is no other way, there's many people that believe there are other ways, and they believe it just as emphatically as you believe what you believe, that he is the only way. Well, we're going to pick up this global false religious system because what the Bible will teach us is there is only one way, that is Jesus Christ to be saved. And all of the religions that come out of this, even the Antichrist himself, will want to be worshipped. Satan is going after being God. Now, we believe that Satan's coming after you, that he wants you. He's not even remotely intimidated by you. Uh, You do not intimidate the devil. The thing that the devil is going after is he wants to be God. And the only thing that will stop the devil from being God is us, the people of God. We'll talk about that when we get into the church because we represent what has already happened because of his pride. Because of the devil's pride and being kicked out out of heaven, the church is the end result of that. That Jesus Christ died and redeemed us and now we're called to the people of God and the people of God are a threat to the devil. But there will be a time in the future where a global false religion will rule. One religion, not many false religions. It will go back to the thinking of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. There will just be one religion and I believe the way it's going to play out is that the Antichrist himself will perform such miracles and signs and wonders with the false prophet that all false religions will turn toward one thing, and that is the devil is God. And when all of the world's religions turn to the devil is God, that is where we talk about the mark of the beast. If you don't worship me, I kill you. Uh, That global false religious system will be in place to move the world to worship Satan. 
because that's what they're going for. So right now we may be worshiping, you know, in auspice. Uh, you know, we may be worshiping a tree, which, you know, is like, yeah, that's false. And we may worship a goat or a golden pig, and we're going, yeah, that's false too. But in the future, uh, the global false religion won't be worshiping pigs and all of that. It'll be worshiping Satan. And we will discuss what will happen to this global false religious system. But here's what the Bible says. It is a verse of Scripture in Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who's seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. I think this is an interesting Scripture because it ties into this false religious system, this immorality of sexuality. And I don't think it's just by chance today that the immorality that we see in our world is astronomical. The sexual immorality we see, the pedophilia that's on the rise now, and we're kind of getting an introduction into it as we talk about sex trafficking and the perversions that are going on, pedophilia, young children being uh, sold into the sex trade, young children being paraded onto pornographic websites. I just read a report yesterday of a gentleman that was in uh, a... Um, a policing agency that kind of went after pedophilia and pornography in the in child sex trafficking and said in his comment in the article that I was reading is that he couldn't even watch what was watched as a two-year-old was raped by 27 different men in one day. The sexual immorality that's already here in our nation is nothing more than a, than a beginning tidal wave of the immorality and the sexuality that will be happening on all those that will become drunk on it. So in other words, as we move into the future... Uh, like a person could get drunk on alcohol, we will begin to get dr uh, drunk on sexual immorality. And I think already in our nation, you can see how powerful anytime we talk about sexuality, sexual identity, man, people are drunk on it, literally drunk on the idea of their sexuality, their sexual immorality, their sexual identity, their gender. All of it is leaning up toward this final thing. So although it feels rather like, oh, you know, mind-altering now to even think that kind of way and how perverted that is, it is a system of the Antichrist spirit that is here that's moving toward this moment of time. Here's a picture of her that uh, I think is, uh, gives you a little clarity. And this is what's described of her. I'll read it in just a minute. But I think we have this image of the devil as just being, you know, totally kind of the horns and pitchfork and all of this. But... According to what we read about her that represents religion, she's beautiful. Listen to Revelation 17, 3 through 5. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abomination and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So know that this global false religious system will be coming against those that represent as a martyr of Jesus Christ and who hold 
the name of Jesus, the blood of the saints. We will talk about that. Uh, many people believe that the blood of the saints uh, are, are all Christians now. I believe it's talking about a different group of people, and I'll discuss that in the future of who those saints are. The next one that we pick up after the prostitute is probably the most famous uh, as, because this is where the, the term 666 begins to arise. This is where the term, you must take the mark of the beast. And if you don't take the mark of the beast, you cannot buy and sell. And so the seventh cast of character is the beast. It is a global political system governed by the Antichrist. We'll talk about who he is in a moment. But there will be not only a global false religion that will be working, there will be a global political system. And that political system will control the economy. And that economy will be controlled by the Antichrist, politically, religiously, and economically. Uh, Lucifer will be in control of those three things on planet Earth for a while. He will control the politics, he will control the religion, and he will control the economics of what is going on. And this system rises up. It's seen as a beast. It is a conglomeration of nations that will be working in cahoots with the Antichrist who is, who is the, you know, working, Satan is working through this person on the earth. And I, again, you know, people say, do I believe we're at the end of time? And do I believe we're at the end? Well, here's what I would say based on a global political system that can control the economy and determine what you buy and sell, maybe a year ago we would have said, eh, probably not possible. But since March of 2020, we have seen that globally, politically, and economically, we can shut down the world on a global scale. We can shut down economies uh, just with a snap of a finger over a virus. We're not talking about Satan. We're talking about a virus. So one virus has already shown us that what we will read about in Revelation 13 is a possibility. Uh, the government controlling economics, what you can buy or sell, when you can get out of your house, where you can go. Uh, right now, uh, we don't have to worry about a mark of the beast to buy and sell. We're not to that level yet. Right now, we're at a face mask. If you want to buy and you want to sell and you want to go out and you want to be part of the world, you have to put on a mask. If you don't put on a mask, you can't go, you can't get in the store, you can't come into a restaurant. And, and though that's done as a measure of safety in our nation right now, uh, it is going to be done as an act of worship in the future. And I believe what we see now with people walking around with face masks on, staying safe, obeying the government politically, economically, it's, it's affected our grocery stores, our businesses. Uh, you know, even the government has passed a several trillion dollar stimulus to help businesses and help employees, employers with their payroll. And, uh, you know, so I will say this, that even though I don't think that is the mark of the beast, I don't think wearing a face shield, face mask is the mark of the beast, but mentally it conditions a globe of people, of humanity, a sea of humanity uh, that uh, you, you need to do this if you want to be part of the overall system. I don't know if you know this or not. There's many people I know that don't even wear masks today. There's those that do and those that don't. But I've even heard those that don't say, I feel so bad when I go out because I don't really feel like I need a mask. But if I do go out, I always get looked at and, and almost shamed that I'm not wearing a mask. 
and, and you know, I get, I get funny looks. Well, can you imagine in the future when uh, we're required to take a mark of the beast? You won't be shamed into taking the mark. You will be beheaded if you don't take the mark. So right now, it's just a working mentally. Well, if I don't put on a mask, I'll feel shame. If I don't put on a mask, I might hurt other people. If I don't put on a mask, I can't go to my favorite restaurant or store. But in the future, when the beast system begins to rise, if you don't comply, you die. That'll be kind of the phrase, comply or die. And I think it's kind of setting us up now. So let's look at this scripture. It's Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. And I saw the beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to the dragon gave its power and throne and great authority. And one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth, I like that, the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So this won't, this won't be the rise of Antichrist, won't be uh, this ugly, devilish-looking fella that basically takes over with an iron fist. He will rise to power very charismatic. People will want to follow him. They will marvel after him. He will be someone that captures their attention, and he will come out of obscurity and rise to the top, and people... Uh, will just bow in honor and worship this person that has come out of obscurity. It won't be forced at first. It will be done willingly. I have people ask me all the time uh, when President Obama was elected, did I think he was the Antichrist? Then when President Trump got elected, is he the Antichrist? Uh, the, the one thing I like about that, though I believe all of it was wrong, uh, the thing I like is that there is an understanding that the Antichrist won't rise up in war and all of that. He's going to rise up through peace. He's going to be a very charismatic leader that will rise up. We will want to follow him. And then it's as I get sucked into wanting to follow him, I will be forced to worship him. And that is the beast system, the Antichrist. During this week, we'll talk about it. Here's a little picture uh, I found on the Internet. I thought it was a good job. Whoever painted it there uh, gives kind of an overview. But can you imagine seeing this? Uh, John has to write this down. This is the picture that he saw uh, a, a lion, a, a leopard, a bear, you know, I mean, and so he's having to write all this down. Well, I don't think there's anything in our modern life right now that would even remotely look like that. I've never seen an animal in the zoo that does that. But as we study the book of Daniel, we will see that this is not just some several-headed beast of an animal, but it is actually defined by Daniel as being kings that rule over different nations, and we will pull that out. It's the beauty of Letting the Bible interpret the Bible. After the beast is number eight. We're winding it down now. Just a few more to go. We get into probably the greatest one of being known to people is the Antichrist. Connected to the word 666. And uh, there's many, many movies out about the Antichrist. Uh, you can, all through Hollywood, this whole devilish figure that... That is, and I gave you this definition, and I'll, I'll give it to you a little greater as we study in the future. A human being possessed by Satan that will have governing control over politics and the economy. But this is a person literally um, possessed by the, the angel, Lucifer. He, he's possessed with him and controls. Kind of like Jesus said to Judas, Iscari Judas Iscariot, Hey, get up from the table, go. And when he did, it says, and Satan filled his heart. 
I believe Judas Iscariot was a type of Antichrist because Satan filled his heart. Most of the times what you see in the Bible is not Satan possessing a human being, but demons that possess human beings. Jesus actually bumped into those. And so that brings us to the next cast of characters, the Antichrist. Uh, I'll give you a picture of the Antichrist first. Uh, I don't think that's him, but I did find it online, and I thought that, that could be maybe what he sort of looks like. But I will say this. He won't look like the devil. He won't have, uh, you know, uh, beady little eyes with the horns and a red pitchfork, but he'll just be a very charismatic, handsome-looking person. I will say man or woman. I don't want to go out too far on a limb of would it be a male or female. There's different people kind of argue that, but I will say uh, male or female, it will be very charismatic and very captivating. The world will follow at will at first until he or she proclaims himself as God, and then that's when everything takes a turn for the worse. But let's notice a scripture of him that's going to come up on the screen. Uh, Revelation chapter, chapter 13, 5 through 8. And a beast was given a mouth to utter haughty and blasphemous words and was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemous things against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, and that is those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given over every tribe and over every people and language and nation and all who dwell on the earth and worship and everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the earth for the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. I love that because it says that he was given and allowed to make war and to conquer and was given authority. And then it says this, global authority. He was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Uh, and there is Satan trying to get the best worship that he can get out of humanity. We come to the next one after the Antichrist. And it is his best friend, the false prophet. The false prophet will be a human being who's possessed by demons. And the false prophet will operate in a very religious, spiritual way. The Bible says that the false prophet will perform signs and miracles and wonders so much so that the people marvel after the Antichrist because he will use his magical powers like Janus and Jambres against Moses. Uh, so just understand that, that Lucifer will have so much power granted unto him that even the false prophet that works with him will be able to perform signs and wonders. This is why we as Christians must be careful not to chase signs and wonders because even people who do not believe in Jesus or adhere to Jesus as being Lord of all and only God, uh, they can still perform signs and wonders. And we need to be careful. It's why Jesus was a little irritated when all they wanted to see was a sign and a wonder. And they wanted to see the miracles that he could do. So even though miracles are a godly thing, we just need to be careful that we don't just assume that a miracle means approval by God. And that uh, kind of can be a little iffy with people. But the false prophet will be performing those signs and wonders. Here is a testament out of the Bible, Revelation 13, 11, and 12 about him. I saw another beast, and this one's kind of strange looking. Rising up out of the earth, had two horns like a lamb, and spoke like a dragon, and exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the beast. 
I love what it said. It said he makes the earth. In other words, there will be a time in the future where you won't be given an option. Right now, you may be given an option about buying and selling and wearing face masks and pandemics, but in the future, there will be no option. You will be forced to worship, and if you don't worship, you'll be beheaded. That's what will be going on with the humans of the earth. Here's a picture uh, that I wrote down, kind of, uh, or I put together of you know, sort of a description of maybe what he saw, horns coming out of his head. And then the scripture that it says about him, and this is what I said a moment ago, I won't belabor the point, Revelation 13, 13 through 18. The false prophet performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to the earth in front of the people. And by the signs, he's allowed to work in his presence of the beast that deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image of the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell. That's economics. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of his name. It calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. And here's the biggie, and his number is, come on, 666. Well talked about. Everybody's tried to figure out who it is. Uh, is it Nero? Is it whoever? You know, whatever president's in charge of the United States, we're trying to connect their name to 666 because we love that. We love trying to decipher who the person is. Well, John didn't tell us who it is, so it's just dumb to try to figure out who it is. But I will tell you this, once they're on the scene and they're threatening to, to uh, behead all those who won't worship, well, by then you'll know. And so I've heard people ask me, and I'll talk about this more, can I take the mark of the beast by accident? Can I get the 666? Like right now people are talking about, oh, did you know the vaccine for COVID potentially has an ID chip in it? Is that the mark of the beast? I don't believe so. Could they use an ID chip to track you for buying and selling? Of course they could. But I will say this, the mark of the beast is not something you take by accident. You take it by force or you take it by will or you die. So it's not something you're going to think, oh, man, I took it and I didn't even know what was going on. The issue with this, though, is in the first part of that verse that says, and he was given power to deceive the earth. In other words, most who take the mark of the beast won't even be thinking it's a bad thing. It will just be a normalized thing. and There'll be nothing connected to it that would be evil because they will be deceived. And we'll talk more about that later. I love, I love that teaching. And now we wind it up with just a few more. Number 10, the devil himself will show up as a character. He's given uh, the description of a dragon. Uh, and here's kind of a picture I put together for you that was given to him. And I'll read the text. It says this about the devil. It describes him this way this time. He's a beautiful angel. Uh, you know, he showed up in uh, Isaiah as a beautiful angel. Book of Ezekiel 28, chapter 28. Little descriptions of him. But here, this is what John saw. I saw an angel coming from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, Revelation 20, verses 1 and 2, and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who's the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Come on, man, you get excited that we win. 
the angel, I know we think, you know, God's really struggling with the devil, but when his time is over, when Lucifer's time has come to an end, God will just send an angel down to bind him up and throw him into a pit. And he stays there for 1,000 years in that pit bound up. And this is during the millennial reign of Christ. But John will see him as a dragon. And we'll discuss is that dragon that sits over the, uh, the prostitute rides upon. He kind of shows up that way as, as a dragon in, in description. And then two more to go. Number 11, Babylon the Great. Uh, what will be going on? Where will Lucifer reign and rule from? During this tribulation period, and I gave you this definition of the Babylon the Great. It is the ruling city of Satan on the earth. And there's a lot of discussion of where will that be. There are people that believe it will be in Rome. Uh, as John said, I saw a city sitting on seven hills, and many people believe that's Rome. Uh, there's people that, I mean, there's this beliefs everywhere. I'll just leave them for you to filter through. But Babylon the Great will be the ruling city. I'm going to sort of land on, unless things change, that it will be in the nation of Iraq where Babylon was and is, and he will rule out of that, and I'll tell you why I believe that to be so. And then finally, the 12th, and it's a beautiful thing. It is the city of God, number 12, the bride of Christ, the holy Jerusalem, and the home of the redeemed. Uh, there's a lot of discussion on who is the bride of Christ. Is the bride of Christ the church? And as we get into it, we will see that the bride of Christ is described as a city. And that city is the dwelling place of the redeemed. And then in Revelation, I love it, we'll conclude with a reading of a scripture here. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. And then I saw in a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared... And the sea was gone, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's throne is now coming among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away whoo, every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or no more crying or no more pain. All things will be gone. These things will be gone forever. And then based on the description that is going to be given of this new heaven and new earth and this city uh, called the Bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem, the dwelling of the saints, it will sit over the literal city of Jerusalem. So the heavenly city will come down and rest above the Jerusalem now in Israel. And I gave you the dimensions of the city 1,400 miles wide by 1,400 miles long by 1,400 miles in a cube. So can you imagine a cube-shaped 1,400 miles? That would probably go, uh, I'm going to assume, from Georgia to Arizona and from the tip of Florida up toward Canada. 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. That is astounding the size that this city will be. So big it is that it says they won't even need sun or moon anymore. That the city will literally give the light. And I believe, you know, part of that is why Jesus called us the light of the world. We're dwelling in this city and we will be giving off light to the world. There'll be no more need of sun or moon there. Uh, just great things are going to happen in this new heaven and new earth. There's going to be no more sea. We're going to talk about why won't there be an ocean anymore. 
uh, and we'll get into it. But this is the end of the show. The end of the show is John saw the heavenly city coming down. The redeemed had won. God had won. The lamb had conquered and redemption had come and fellowship with God and his people had been restored. Let's look at, if you don't mind, go back to your Bible where we started in Revelation chapter 1. I, I gave you this and I said, now let's let the journey begin. I'm asking you to the best of your ability to come every Wednesday night and be part of this study with me. If you can't make it, uh, assuredly uh, download the, the messages that will be posted. Uh, they'll be posted on our website and well as our YouTube page. But there's a passage of scripture that I want us to really um, look at this week and, and end right here. It's Revelation 1-3. Because a lot of times we stay away from the book of Revelation because it makes us nervous. I don't understand it. I've even heard people say, it's just so hard of a book. I don't even understand it. I don't even read it. I'm kind of scared of it. And I think that's purposeful of the devil. He wants you scared of it. Revelation 1-3 says this. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Don't you love that? The Bible says you're blessed if you will just read it. So I'm not asking you to understand every symbol, to understand the end of the world and how it's all going to play out. We'll have a great time on this journey together. I will do my best to teach it the best I can. But I want you to understand this. If you'll just read it out loud, you will be blessed. Just read it out loud. Go home and just open up the Bible in Revelation and just start reading it and hear it. Read it out loud. Read it to your kids. Read it in the morning out loud over a cup of coffee. Why? Because it says you will be blessed. And I can tell you it's absolutely true. I've proven it true. We get so stuck in what does this mean that we don't even read it. And Jesus starts it out by saying, ah, just read it aloud and you'll be blessed. So I'm not asking you to understand all the symbols, but I'm asking you to read it. I love you. I bless you. Come back next week. We dive in with lesson two, talking about Jesus, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end, and how that transcribes into the dimension of time. I love you. I bless you. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much for joining us on the Believer's Church YouTube channel. If you would like more information about Believer's Church, you can visit mybelieverschurch.com. If there is anything that you need prayer for, please email us at amen at mybelieverschurch.com. Be sure to check back next week for a brand new message.